Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. When all the strategists and all the economists are saying one thing, usually something else happens. The economy is an ever-changing ecosystem that leaves little room for control. For businesses, sometimes it can feel like an opponent just as much as it feels like a partner. I mean, anything can change, of course. And we learn, you know, with humility that just when you think, you know, things won't change, perhaps they do. So you got to be very humble about things. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. In assessing the post-pandemic landscape, a possible recession has been an ongoing hot topic, leaving businesses in a difficult position as it relates to decision-making. Today's guest has a career that's given him expansive knowledge about the realities of the current market. Today, we're sitting down with my only two-time guest, Greg Nabhan. If you heard the first episode with Greg, you'll remember that he's chairman of the America's Equity Capital Markets for Bank of America, as well as managing director of the consumer and retail team. Greg is responsible for the origination, structuring, book building, price discovery, allocation, trading, and aftermarket performance of equity transactions. He has 35 plus years of experience on Wall Street, and during the last 20 of those years, Greg has led over 400 transactions, raising over $265 billion for companies around the world, including 115 IPOs. Prior to joining B of A in June of 2008, Greg worked at Morgan Stanley for 13 years, where he was an MD in their capital markets group. Let's welcome Greg Naphan back into the arena. The returns this year have been actually pretty robust, so we're certainly surprised on the upside. Although the S&P is up about 9%, there are seven stocks in the S&P 500, including Tesla and Meta and Google and Amazon and NVIDIA and Apple that are up on average about 75% year to date. The other 493 companies in the S&P 500 are actually up 0.1%. So this is among the most narrowly focused markets and return environment that we've seen in 40 years. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is either good or bad, but oftentimes when we see a market performing in such a narrow way, it's not necessarily sustainable. Yeah, it's funny, you know, if you watch CNBC every day, I always have it on in the background, you just think like the market is ripping like every day, you know, but it's NVIDIA, like you said, it's it's a handful of stocks. I know it's hard to make a market call, but it, it just seems like we're in a bit of a blow off top on those seven stocks. I mean, certainly they could keep going up, you never know, but do you think it's sustainable? What do you think happens from here? We're in a world of, in my judgment, in our judgment of higher interest rates, higher inflation, 
potentially higher volatility. And I'm not talking about over the next three months. I'm talking about the next three, five, and 10 years. Higher for longer in terms of inflation, higher for longer in terms of interest rates. I will remind everybody in in the last 3,000 years, we've really only had one other period of 0% interest rates or free money. And that was in the 1920s. And of course, that didn't end great. And what I will say is that, you know, the Fed has raised rates by, call it, 500 basis points. We think the Fed has more work to do, you know, to get that unemployment rate up, to take the heat out of wages. I think the majority of the work that the Fed has to do is done, but I don't think they're fully complete now or fully finished. And that will probably cause some indigestion in the market as the Fed continues and a more hawkish build on interest rates. And then the broader point is the market has to adjust to, you know, a longer term world of higher interest rates for good, i.e. The, the world of free money is, has now, is now gone. And I don't believe that it's coming back. Yeah. And then short term, listen, in the last three months, you've seen Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, you've seen all these bank failures and Wall Street tends to look at things very short term sometimes and everyone's thinking hey you know is the fed going to ease and are we going to go into an easing cycle that may be the case but certainly as you're talking about you know framing out the next five or ten years it could be an easing cycle within just kind of a new paradigm of of higher rates and and everyone just kind of has to get used to that right well said in terms of we're going to have easing cycles within a long-term secular trend of higher for longer i think that's how one should think about it as an investor or trader or banker or what have you, or private equity person. The other thing I will just share with you is that since 1975, on average, there have been 61 banks per year in the United States that have failed. And then you'd say, well, the 70s were a tough era, high inflation, high interest rates, you know, gas lines, this, that. So let's look at it from the year 2000. There's been about 550 banks that have failed since 2000, and that's 25 per year. And so banks fail. And now, of course, you know, there have been, these are, have been significant banks and we had a big international bank that effectively failed as well. Part of that is, you know, in terms of assets, it's a very large number, but of course the world economy is much bigger than it was 20 years ago and 30 years ago and 40 years ago. So banks fail in the United States. That's just part of the process. I would suggest that we, I think there'll be continued consolidation on that front. But so far, the economy from our perspective has weathered both the significant rise in interest rates over the last 14 months and a number of U.S. bank failures. It shows you the resiliency of our economy. It's kind of amazing. It's amazing. I would say most people have no idea about that level of bank failures. I certainly didn't. It's interesting, right? I think you have to look at it within the context of the framework of, you know, 60 plus bank failures a year since 1975. That's not to say that we should be relaxed about it. We should be vigilant, of course, but there's tremendous precedent for it. Right, exactly. You know, when we talked the last time too, we talked about, you know, kind of inflation and war in Europe and the rate hikes and the debt ceiling was kind of the last macro thing that got resolved. I mean, would you put anything else on the menu in terms of like what people are worried about in, in the grand scheme of things? Or is it just kind of like, it's the same themes Maybe they're just being a little bit more digested by the market and people are coming to grips with them. What, like, what's your thought with all that big stuff that's happening? Well, earnings, you know, the S&P 500 earnings keep surprising on the upside. And so I, I would say that many, not all, but many economists and strategists have been calling for a recession for the last 
call it nine or even 12 months, you know, I do think that we will probably have a mild recession. I would also suggest to you, and you know this, Tom, from your experience on Wall Street, that when all the strategists and all the economists are saying one thing, usually something else happens. And so I think we got to be a little careful with, you know, the consensus seems to be forecasting recession. We believe that will be the case, but the market appears right now to be looking through it. However, you have to go underneath the market and understand how NVIDIA, Apple, Amazon, Google, Meta, Tesla, et cetera, are trading to what's really driving the returns. And it really is the Magnificent Seven, which is extraordinary. Yeah, it's amazing. And listen, the other companies may be struggling to generate equity returns just in a broader context, you know, selling equity in 2022 and, and thus far in 2023, particularly like an IPO or something, it, it, it's unprecedented. And, you know, you've been on Wall Street for a really long time. Maybe put the IPO market of 22 and so far in 2023 kind of in context, like you're feeling about that. Like, is it way abnormal or, you know, how, how do you see it? That's a Terrific question. So the IPO market has shut, Tom, four times in the last 40 years, right? So let's just review that briefly. So obviously post the 87 crash, 1987 crash, the market had shut for a period of time. A post 9-11 and the dot-com bust in 2001 and two, the market shut for a period of time. Of course, the global financial crisis in 08, and so 07 and 08, the market shut for a period of time. And of course, post-COVID in 2022. Now, on average, when the market shuts in the four times in the last 40 years, the market shut for approximately between, call it 19 to 21 months. Yep. The Kenview IPO, which we believe and hope has reinvigorated and reopened the IPO market, came at month 19. And that was a $4.5 billion IPO, a subsidiary IPO coming out of Johnson & Johnson, obviously the consumer health business being spun out of J&J. Yep. So it's really interesting in terms of actually at the 19th month that IPO hit and it's actually traded extremely well. Yeah, we talked last time about the opposing forces of management teams and boards of directors kind of coming to grips with the new reality on maybe valuations versus 21, yet the opposing forces, hey, we need money, we need capital. It just feels to me like we're in a much better place, even though you know there hasn't been tons of IPO issuance or, or equity issuance. It just seems like we're in a much better place psychologically for management teams and, and companies to kind of move forward and say, look, we'll, we'll do something and we'll build value in the aftermarket like it, the way it's always been, <laughs> except for 21. Exactly. But, I mean, do you think psychologically, you know, you're all over the world, you're traveling, you hear everything. Like, what do you think the psychology of management teams are kind of looking at the next six months or whatever? Significantly improved expectations have been brought in significantly in terms of relative and intrinsic value on the part of the owners of businesses. That includes management teams as well as private equity firms. That's not to say that, of course, they want fair and full value, but they're also extraordinarily focused on having you know, the optimal IPO price. But I would say that in the new world, post-COVID and obviously the war, et cetera, the new world in 23, 24, 25, 
the intensive focus is, on, is going to be on optimization of price at IPO, but also the highest quality shareholder base that we can drive. And of course, a strong and responsible aftermarket. Now, the fundamental thing that I would share with you is that every single company that has gone public, and they haven't been that many, but every single company that has gone public in 2023 has been profitable. Only half the companies that went public in 2021 were profitable. Only 50, so 50% were unprofitable. Now 100% of them are profitable. And I think that is the most important delineation point that I will share with you. And obviously, cash flow is king. So it's all about innovation, culture, cash flow, and management teams that think and act like owners. recent approval of the Inflation Reduction Act has contributed to boosting the green economy and the energy transition as a whole. I asked Greg if there are any other industries that jump out to investors as favorable spaces to put their money to work. I think AI is going to have a, such a transformational impact on not just our country, but of course the world, society, and I think healthcare. I think what is going to happen in healthcare in terms of the eradication of disease over the next three, five, 10, 20 years is going to, I think the historians will write about this 100 years from now, 200 years from now, in terms of its impact. So to me, parts of healthcare, including companies in life science, medical devices, pharma, et cetera, are going to be really transformed by AI. And I think, you know, the, the human race is going to benefit enormously from the science and the technology that's going to drive not just living standards higher, but of course, people are going to live substantially longer as a result of the eradication of a number of diseases. And I think that's going to be in part driven by AI. Yeah, it's super exciting. It feels like, and I don't know what your opinion is, the whole AI stuff and all the stocks and stuff, it feels like a little bubblish. But if, you know, you and I were around in the internet crash in 2000 and that just completely collapsed. But imagine, you know, going through the wreckage there and buying Amazon and all these other companies that have like changed the world. It feels like it's going to be the same thing. There might be a, a little bit of a blow off, but like if you're smart, you're in it for, for like the next 20 years. Pick the winners. Let, let's talk about that for a second because Amazon went public in 1997. So a couple of years right before the, the internet crash, 9-11, et cetera. I will just remind everybody, it was an $80 million IPO for a $220 million market cap. Yeah. It went to $2 trillion. Okay. NVIDIA went public in 1999. And as you know, Tom, it just crossed a trillion dollars of market cap. Now, how many companies in the history of the world have crossed a trillion dollar market cap? I will tell you, nine in the history of the world. And NVIDIA just did it. And so, and that company went public right into the teeth of the internet bubble burst and obviously 9-11, et cetera. And Google went public in 2005, so a couple of years after. And so, and that company has been, a company of course has been extraordinary. So yes, AI, we call it a baby bubble. We think AI is in a baby bubble. There's no question about it. However, there are going to be enormous, when, when we look back on this period, you and I, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, there will be enormous winners. And our job is to find those companies and bank them. Yeah, hundred percent. And and listen, you guys are have the expertise and the track record to do so for sure. I wanted to go back to Kenview. You talked about very generally profitable companies and how 
there's certainly an, an appetite for, for those companies who are executing really well. What specifically about that KenView deal was, was so great for investors and, and for you all? So let, let's frame it this way. So in the 10-year period leading up to 2022, the S&P return with dividends was about mid-teens, which is way ahead of the normalized annual return of the S&P 500, which for the last 140 years is approximately 7% return and a 1.5% to 2% dividend yield. So call it 9%. So it was, you know, call it 600 basis points in advance of the normalized return over the last, for the 10 years, over the last 130, let's say. Now, in the new world, we think the return environment will be substantially more subdued. Higher interest rates, higher inflation, potentially more volatility. We'll see about war, et cetera. And what that means is that there is going to be an extraordinary and acute focus, of course, on cash flow. And cash flow means dividends. And dividends have historically been 40% of the total return in U.S. common stock investing over the last 140 years. So you ask me, getting to your question, why was the KenView IPO so successful because the company is a cash flow machine, right? We'd put a 3.7% dividend yield at the midpoint of the range. The company had about a 6% free cash flow yield at the midpoint of the range, very low level of debt, an extraordinarily strong management team, unbelievable brands, of course, with Tylenol, Listerine, Band-Aid, Neutrogena soap, et cetera. And I think the combination of brands, balance sheet, cash flow, dividend, and extraordinary management really captivated the market's attention. And that's the reason for the success. Yeah, I mean, AI aside, uh, that just makes me think like, no wonder companies like Apple and Microsoft and all these guys are, are doing so well because they are totally cash machines and they don't need any outside financing, right? And they have a lock on their markets. I don't know why, why they don't pay higher dividends, to be honest. I don't know if it's like that old mindset of like, we need to hoard our cash like Bill Gates did in the beginning. And that's just kind of the way tech companies operate. Like we need to have a hundred billion in cash, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I would also remind the, the, you know, people, all of, all of your listeners or our listeners that think about it in terms of not just dividends, uh, think of it as buybacks and dividends. So what we call buyback yield, right? So how much capital is being returned to investors? So uh, you're right about technology companies paying lower dividends. Apple is a, a an incredible buyer of their own stock. And so you have to think of this in terms of not just dividend yield, but buyback yield, which is the combination of buyback plus dividend. And that's how you think about total return from a shareholder standpoint, plus earnings growth. Yeah. And the activists, they always go after companies that don't have that capital allocation right. But, you know, it is it is kind of three legs of the stool. It's growth and then it's it's dividends and, and buybacks and, and reducing debt and just really knowing how to allocate capital to create value for shareholders. That's key. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about as it relates to equity issuance, the credit markets have changed, certainly for smaller companies. A lot of companies were having problems refinancing. I would, I would have to imagine too, that that's going to force some companies to sell equity, maybe not at the valuation that they would have wanted a couple of years ago, but just the realities of where the balance sheet stands and maybe a debt bullet, you know, in the next year or more. Are there any like techniques that issuers are using or different financings that they're looking at given kind of what's going on in the market? Well, I completely agree with you. Number one, I do think there will be a number of companies in a broad 
array of industries that will be issuing equity to get leverage down. This is a very important point, right? The new world is about lower leverage. It's, a, it, it, it's about strong cash flow, lower leverage, less balance sheet risk. So there will be companies that will be issuing common stock, a primary common stock to get leverage down. Now, in terms of the new world, the ECM business remains very much about advice and trust, distribution power, trading acumen, relationship, banking, capital market relationship, et cetera. And so that is, that's the way it's been for my entire four-decade career. I don't see that change. So far, it hasn't changed. I mean, anything can change, of course. And we learn, you know, with humility that just when you think, you know, things won't change, perhaps they do. So you got to be very humble about things. But there have been some at the margin changes. And, you know, when we, when we often, not always, but oftentimes we are wall crossing investors, right? So we're taking investors over the wall ahead of a public launch. So we're giving access to investors, institutional investors on a wall cross basis to have them spend more time with management teams in a less sort of a, a less visible way in front of a public launch of transactions. But I will tell you that we're hearing from institutional investors, whether it's in Boston, New York, Los Angeles, Baltimore, et cetera, that they want these management teams, especially as it relates to IPOs in their office. And they really, really put a premium on that. So the Zoom phenomenon is still very much with us. And you know it's with us in the capital formation process as it relates to follow-on offerings. But in the IPO business, many institutional investors you know, in the larger cities, New York, Boston, Los Angeles, Baltimore, et cetera, with significant money managers, public market money managers are requesting that we come to those cities and sit with the, their portfolio managers and analysts for, you know, 90 minutes, two hours, so they can really dig in and dig in on these stories. And we think that that's, you know, that's kind of a blast from the past, but that's where we're headed. I was going to say with like all this new technology, there's no replacement for like looking at the whites of someone's eyes, you know, and asking them questions about the business, right? Right. Because if you think about what these large, important, super high profile institutions, they want to partner with these management teams over the next three, five, and 10 years. Our job is to underwrite the best businesses. I I try to remind people, don't focus on what's going to be a good stock. Focus on what's going to be a great business. And let's underwrite the world's best businesses. And when we show up in Boston or New York or LA, Baltimore, et cetera, we want to hitch our wagon to the world's best businesses and then find through price discovery and book building the best price, make sure that we have the optimal capital structure, make sure we focus on the companies, you know, drive home the thesis around the company's ability to, to, to generate free cash flow, and obviously focus on the total return argument as well in a lower return world. Because I think the equity returns over the next 10 years will be far more subdued than they have been over the last 10. Yeah. Well, listen, you know, Greg, that's a great a place to leave it. I think what I've heard today is there's many, many layers to what's going on right now. And management teams really need to be informed about what's important to investors. If you're really looking to build value, not just in the next year, but over the long term. And that's really, really what investors want to see. So it's not management teams and boards job necessarily to be up on the market every day. So they need to be educated. And Greg, you know, you're such a, a qualified and experienced person to do that. Well, my pleasure, Tom. And I, I would just share one observation. You know, I'm often asked, what's the greatest piece of advice 
you know, I would give your listeners, but also others who are either embarking on a career on Wall Street or in money management or private equity. And I really want to encourage everyone to play the long game, you know, focus on quality, be very, very direct, always operate with the highest level of integrity, focus on free cash flow, listen intensively, and always remember, you know, that we live in a very, very competitive world. The economic climate could be complex and unpredictable, and we all know there isn't a cookie-cutter approach for businesses when it comes to developing a strategy during uncertain times. While preparation is key, focusing on the long-term rather than today or tomorrow is essential to outlasting the bumps in the road. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, Subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Greg for joining us on the show today. His vast career makes him an amazing resource to break down the realities of the market and what businesses should be concerned about. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.